0: Welcome everyone, this is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. I hope you're doing well on this beautiful night and I'm excited to be back in the studio. I haven't been here in a couple of weeks. Um, We have a um, program, had to run tapes on due to scheduling and so I apologize but hopefully you enjoyed some of those tapes Um, and we have um, been having a lot of conversation with this growing neurology team um, that we have at Trinity Health of New England and we thought we'd continue that conversation with um, one of our uh, neurologists and who happens to be an incredible neurologist. She is actually Dr. Mary Bailey, who um, is a Trainee Health of New England Regional Medical Director of Rehabilitation and Multiple sclerosis, Sclerosis and Fellowship Director for the Mandel MS Center. She also serves as the Medical Director for the Institute of Rehabilitation Medicine and Chair of our Rehabilitation Medicine at Quinnipiac University. And we're we're really excited to have her on the program tonight because we did want to continue the conversation on neurological issues. And because we've done so much regionally with Trinity Health of New England with our um, multiple sclerosis centers, we thought that Dr. Bailey would be an incredible guest. Hi, Dr. Bailey.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Oh, thank you so much for taking the time on this beautiful night to uh, spend time with us to uh, talk more about our multiple sclerosis program and yourself and all the great things that are happening. So we're really excited to have you tonight. So welcome. Thank you. So, you know, there, your your pedigree here on what you've done is so incredible, especially being a woman in the field of neurology. And so, uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, I introduced you rather as our Regional Director of Rehabilitation and Multiple Sclerosis and our Fellowship Director for the Mandel Center. So what does all that mean? Maybe you can explain your role to us a bit.
1: Sure. Yes. So um, I was very happy to take on this regional role. And what I do is I really oversee the operations of our three Mandel multiple sclerosis centers. So we have one located in Hartford, um, one located in Waterbury, Connecticut, and one in Springfield, Massachusetts. And our Mandel centers um, are really focused on giving comprehensive care to the multiple sclerosis patients. So not only can patients go there to get their MS care from a neurologist, but also they can have all of their symptoms and MS-related needs met at the center. So we have, um, in addition to our neurologists, we have an infusion center where they can have their treatments. We have physiatrists to deal with some of their symptoms, urologists to help with their bladder symptoms, social workers, um, and we have um, therapists for their rehabilitation needs, um, which is physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. And the list goes on and on. Um, so we really like to sort of think of it as one-stop shopping for mm-hmm. our patients. And it, it's
0: so important to have Everybody under one roof, I think, for these patients, because, you know, and, and we'll talk more about um, the effects of MS on, on an individual, but, you know, mobility for some of these individuals can be difficult, and being able to get everything in one place where you're comfortable with the care, I'm sure, is huge part of the healing process.
1: Absolutely, and I think it also allows us to work as a team of providers so that we all can communicate with each other best about our our patients and really provide them with the best care.
0: So the heart, our, the center in Hartford was our first um, to open, was the first to open up and, and it was well before I believe we actually became regional as hospitals. The Amanda Center has been in existence.
1: Yes, that's correct. So it was the first one to open up and it was um, over 10 years ago at this point and wow. it was and it was the idea of um, Joyce and Andrew uh, Mandel um, and Andrew Mandel actually has multiple sclerosis and wanted to have a place where he could get all of his MS care needs met. And so they very generously made um, a donation to create this kind of center. Um, And that's how the Mandel MS Centers were born. And and from there, everything just began to grow.
0: Yeah, it's Um, incredible. It's incredible to see it grow.
1: Yeah, and it has expanded into other communities and this model of comprehensive care Mm has really become um, something that other locations and other centers have tried to replicate as well throughout the country. You know,
0: we've seen it in the past with cancer centers, right? So, you know, doing the mm-hmm. same model and the same theory to bring everything to one location to meet the patient's need. But, you know, you mentioned something about having all the physicians in one location plus the therapy team because you guys can collaborate better because you get to know the patients and, you know, you you all have your eyes on the patient and you have the ability to connect and identify things and come up with a better plan, I would think.
1: Absolutely. I think that it's uh, harder to do that when you are receiving care um, at multiple different locations. I think communicating with other doctors, other therapists, it's not impossible, certainly, but it just takes a lot of effort. Whereas when we work as a team, we all know each other, um, we have meetings weekly to talk about patients and to talk about difficult cases, and, and we can really put our heads together to figure out how best to help certain patients.
0: Are we involved also, as, because we are a center, or are you involved within clinical trials too?
1: Yes, so we actually have a whole research department that is dedicated to multiple sclerosis research and rehabilitation research, and we are also very lucky to... Um, have uh, academic involvement with Quinnipiac University School of Medicine, and we have a relationship with um, Oxford School of Medicine in the United Kingdom as well. So we have an exchange program between Quinnipiac and Oxford and have research fellows who work on projects both at Oxford and Quinnipiac and the Mandel Center. So we have a lot of interdisciplinary um, research going on um, amongst these institutions.
0: You know, I'm going to speak a little bit academically now because you just, you know, highlighted two incredible universities, of course, right here in Connecticut, now connected to Oxford in the United Kingdom. And, you know, so many young people leave our state to go seek um, training such within the medical field in in other states or other areas, other arenas. We have so many resources right here in Connecticut, and Quinnipiac is one of those.
1: Yes, absolutely. I um, have considered it one of the most fun parts of my job <laughs> to um, get back into academics and 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 teach medical students, teach, um, in this research capacity, oh. and um, I think that it's a wonderful medical school, and um, I would highly recommend it for anyone interested in going into medicine.
0: Yeah, that's, it's incredible. I, I know uh, quite a few individuals that have chosen different branches of um, healthcare um, field, and Quinnipiac offers so much, so it's definitely Absolutely. an amazing jewel that we have in Connecticut. So. You know, when you look to regionalize something such as this and and bring it across um, our hospital system, what are some of the priorities for you as the medical director?
1: Uh, Great question. I think one of my biggest priorities is standardization of care Mm -hmm. at each center. So I want to ensure that if a patient is going to Hartford, that they're receiving the same care as if they are going to Waterbury and Springfield and that they have the same services available so that, um, you know, I think that it's very important this day and age that where you go for your MS care Uh, doesn't necessarily dictate the type of MS care you get. We want it always to be the highest level of care. And uh, what I mean by that is there are so many different medications right now for MS to choose from. And we want to make sure that all our neurologists are up to date on the highest efficacy, most up to date medications that we're all using them with the same protocols in the same ways, that we have good relationships with our neuroradiologists, reading our most up-to-date MRIs with those most up-to-date protocols for the MRIs. And so really it's all about standardization of care to make sure it is premier care.
0: Now, you joined the center back, I believe, in 2016, correct? That is correct. Now, looking at it, from joining back in 2016 to date, how would you say we've grown as a region, not just by adding our MS centers, but I mean by your team?
1: I think that we have grown leaps and bounds um, in that amount of time, Um, Specifically, opening our two other centers, uh, Waterbury and Springfield, and then the addition of other um, neurologists. So we have this summer starting um, two new fellowship-trained neurologists. uh and that is very exciting so um dr ashmani mahatu will be starting um and splitting her time between our waterbury and hartford center and she is uh just finished her ms fellowship at Beth israel in wow. boston and we have dr heba el husseini uh who will be working in the springfield center and she just finished her fellowship at yale So we not only have physically grown with our different centers, but we have um, grown in regards to premier staff. and And I just gave you an example of two of these wonderful people who have joined us, but there are so many others at all different levels in regards to nursing, therapists, social workers. Um, and I could go
0: on and on. And that's that's the thing. I think that the team is incredible, and I think for us um, as a as a hospital system to be able to recruit that level now is exciting for us. I agree. And so keep them in Connecticut so so we don't yes. so we don't lose them, right? Which is great. So I'd like to maybe now look at MS itself and talk a little bit more about MS because it's definitely the key to our conversation tonight. And let's talk about what MS actually is, if you don't mind.
1: Sure. So multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease, meaning that it's your body's own immune system that's attacking itself. And so many people with MS, um, think that it is, uh, means that your uh, immune system is underactive and that you're susceptible to infection, when in, in fact, it's the opposite. So when you have MS, your immune system is overactive, but it's overactive in a dysfunctional way. And that's why it's attacking itself. And what it exactly attacks is the fatty protective coating around the nerves called myelin. And when that happens, it causes a disruption of the signaling down the nerves and that leads to specific symptoms that our patients feel, such as numbness or tingling, loss of vision in one eye, weakness in an arm or a leg, and the list of symptoms, you know, is quite variable, hmm. but that's overall what MS is.
0: So when when something when someone ex- when would someone be caused to get treatment or get themselves diagnosed? I should say, like what what usually brings someone forward to get themselves diagnosed?
1: Sure. I think that that's a great question because a lot of the symptoms that I described are also symptoms that overlap with many other neurologic diseases. And so what I tell patients is that if you have developed um, any new symptoms, um, for example, numbness or tingling in one arm or one leg, or loss of vision or darkening of vision in an eye, and um, you've seen your primary care doctor, and those symptoms last for 24 hours or more and are persistent, we start getting concerned about a what we call demyelinating event. Mm. So that is disruption of the myelin in a process like multiple sclerosis. And usually, um, we, the, My patients have at least seen their primary care doctor first um, to address these symptoms. And often they have had an MRI of the brain, which will show some kind of abnormality that might be concerning for a process such as MS. And once that's done, they then come to me, you know, for further workup.
0: And what would that be doc? What you know, I always hear of the MRI as the gold standard start I'll say to the mm-hmm. to the diagnosis of uh, of MS. But now as you're saying then you have to take that a little further. So what tools do you use or tests do you use to help you get to that diagnosis?
1: Sure. So I always teach my medical students that the your, your biggest tool for diagnosis is always going to be listening to the patient's hmm. Story of their symptoms. And I remember that I had a professor in medical school, Dr. August Fortin, who said, When you're meeting your patient for the first time, you introduce yourself and then you be quiet. Hmm. And then they will tell you with their story what their diagnosis is. And I've never forgotten that. So I always listen. And let the patient uh, tell their story, because there are so many key pieces in regards to how their symptoms came on, how long they lasted, what it felt like. There are a lot of key details. So really, a lot is in the story. I'm going Once to make I you. That, I'm going to make you laugh. They
0: taught us that in nursing school too. I had a. <laughs> I had a nursing instructor. Doctor. Car- I mean, a uh, uh, instructor her name was Carolyn Gumper. I just saw her actually recently. She's a lovely woman. She taught us that. She says she would but she was a little gruffer. She goes, Just shut your mouth
1: and listen <laughs> but it's so true and um, so after i get a really good detailed history um, i'll do an examination and then i really need to look for data that Mm. helps me better understand what's going on and so that really for me will mean getting an mri of the brain and often of the cervical spine which is the neck and the thoracic spine, which is the mid-back.
0: Now, what are you um, looking for it, there?
1: So when, so I think of the spinal cord really as just a tail that hangs off of the brain. Mm. And so in MS, we're looking for these spots in the white matter on the brain. And some people refer to them as lesions, some as plaques or scars. They all mean the same thing. And I'm looking for those same spots. On the spinal cord okay and that will help me figure out if there are spots on the brain are there similar spots on the spinal cord S- and I'm also going to check some blood work okay uh, to help me look for things that might be what we call MS mimickers things that aren't necessarily MS but could be causing your symptoms
0: so Will these lesions tell you also where the person is in their MS, where they are, what stage they're at?
1: Sometimes they will, um, but n- most of the time, no. The only way that we can really um, put a time stamp on how long somebody has had MS is if they have had an MRI um, in the past. Mm that we can go back and compare to. And then we can say, well, you know, five years ago, for example, when you had this MRI for a different reason, you did not have these spots. And so we could say that some time within the last five years, this developed. But otherwise, it's quite difficult to put a timestamp on it.
0: You know, I'm sure when you meet with patients, you know, they, they hear MS and they're like, what did I do to get this? How do I, How did right. I get MS? What is that conversation like for you and what do you say?
1: Oh, so I tell them that unfortunately we all like to control things in our <laughs> lives, but we don't have that much control. So nobody does anything to get MS. Um, and it just happens. But there are certain risk factors that we know about. So MS, it being an autoimmune disease, we know that certain people are genetically susceptible to autoimmune diseases. And so often we will see autoimmune diseases running in families. And so I will ask patients about uh, their family history and if they have anyone with MS, but I will also ask them if they have any blood relatives with lupus, type 1 diabetes, or rheumatoid arthritis.
0: Are they... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Doc. Well, I was wondering, you know, when you're asking the history, I mean, is there any genetic testing we can do on patients before they're even showing symptoms?
1: So we do know about the genetics of MS, but We don't advise um, people to have early genetic testing Mm -hmm. without symptoms um, because we always think about what would we do with that test result clinically, and really we wouldn't do anything. So that's why we also don't advise, for example, um, siblings of Ah. MS patients to have MRIs if they don't have any symptoms because at this point in time at least we wouldn't do anything with those findings per se so it's really all about learning do you have any symptoms that need further workup
0: and then once you've diagnosed the patient is there is MS just MS, or are there different types of MS?
1: There are um, different types of MS, and the way we differentiate those different types of MS is through the story of the symptoms Mm -hmm. um, that the patient tells us. Mm -hmm. So the most common type of MS is called relapsing remitting MS, which is where uh, symptoms will come on, they will stay for a while, and then they will typically... Um, improve. Um, there is a uh, less common type of MS called primary progressive MS, and most of those patients will describe a progressive decline in their walking from the onset of their disease. So that is a much different description of symptoms.
0: And then it t- it it helps you to treat them based on their conversation with you, the course of treatment that you would give them. Exactly. Now, we're going down that road of treatment. So, I- I'm so sure that you know you've been doing this you know for a while that you've seen such a change in the type of treatments there are for MS. Can we talk a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. So. Um it is has been quite a journey in regards to seeing how the MS treatments have evolved, and um, really, um, since I was you know a medical student and into my residency and fellowship, the world of treatments has exploded. And it's not just that we have a variety of treatments, but they're effectiveness has now become so strong that it has really changed the course of what MS can be like for patients so when we start patients on one of these very highly effective treatments early in the course of their disease it really can change how they do over the course of their life and
0: what dictates what a patient, of course, the treatment they have? Is it the type of MS they have? Is it their symptoms that dictate it? Um, what what factors come into play as you pick a treatment?
1: So I think that, first of all, the the types of treatments that are recommended are most often now in 2021, the high-efficacy treatment because what our studies have shown us, are the um, the earlier you treat, and the more effectively sure. you treat, the better your long term outcomes are. So the um, I would say that most MS neurologists are using the higher efficacy treatments. Um, very early or if you're you have a patient who comes to you and is not already on one of them you have a discussion about switching them to one um so that's generally how we're deciding on treatment options and then a lot of it is left up to a conversation between the patient and the provider on what they feel in with their life the best and what they're most comfortable with.
0: Patients that are getting some of these medications, and I'm I'm thinking that the ones you're describing are mostly the ones that we give via infusion. Am I correct in that?
1: Some of them are infusions. Um, One of them that I'm thinking of is an oral medication. But yes, most of them are infusions.
0: And how often... Usually is that treatment given or is it given based on the exacerbation of the person's symptoms, meaning the progression, I guess?
1: Right. So um, actually, so we don't we don't treat patients based on exacerbations or flare ups okay. because our mm-hmm. expectation is if a patient is on a treatment that is working they should not have any exacerbations or flares and they should have no new lesions on their mri so we have very high expectations and standards of our medications Um, and so the treatments typically are either once a month um, infusions um, and they don't take very long Or once every six months. And those are the ones I use commonly. Uh, But certainly there are other medications to choose from. And I always say there's always a right medication for each patient. It's not one size fits all.
0: You know, when people are diagnosed with MS, I think everyone saw as, you know, there's no hope. So, you know, what we're describing here is something that with these new medications that are out there, people are living with MS and living normal more normal lives, correct?
1: That's absolutely true. So, I tell my newly diagnosed patients that I want them to think of this more akin to a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, where if we really think about it as focusing on prevention, taking a treatment to prevent new lesions, to prevent relapses, then I'm expecting them to move forward with uh, living how they are as they are in the moment. And if I find that they're changing, then that means their treatment isn't working well enough and I will have a conversation with them about finding a treatment that is going to work better
0: when you talk about living with MS, it's not just the medication. What are some of the other tools that we use, the disciplines we talked a bit about, the therapies that you have there? You know, what are some of the things that help these patients live normal lives outside of the medication?
1: Absolutely. I think this is such a a key thing to talk about. So, um, you know, despite our best efforts in regards to controlling relapses there are some day-to-day symptoms that patients still have mm-hmm. and that's where our colleagues in our other specialties like urology and physiatry come into play and they are able to help us treat and, and, very, and manage very well those symptoms. Um, so for example let say one of our patients may have difficulty with balance, they may see a physical therapist who does specific balance training and really helps them overcome that symptom. Or if we have a patient who has bladder symptoms that maybe for years they thought was due to something else, well, they can see the urologist and talk about ways that they can relieve that symptom with either um, therapy or a symptomatic medication.
0: Do we ever focus on diet and nutrition with these patients?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I always tell patients that, you know, a multidisciplinary approach from the patient's perspective is so critical mm. because we know that a healthy diet remaining as active as possible, um, and not smoking, having adequate amounts of vitamin D, Mm. those are all going to lead to a much better prognosis.
0: You know, when we when you know we mentioned this, it's an overactive immune system. Are people afraid to you know take like immune support? What do you talk to them about? Because there's so much out there now. Because of COVID with immune support, you know, your vitamin C's, your your um, elderberries. What what comes into play with that?
1: That's a great question. And in general. Um, The only supplement I really recommend for my kids is vitamin D. Um, And I think that anything else, um, I say their immune system is already overactive, Mm. so they probably don't need much else.
0: Right. How about exercise for these patients? I'm sure that you know, trying to get them to stay as active as they possibly can within their means is super important. And does it help with keeping their mobility in check?
1: Absolutely. I say to my patients that um, we know that remaining active and doing whatever exercise you can do is really important um, because that will help maintain uh, muscle strength. It will maintain your flexibility, which is important. And I also emphasize that exercise may not look now like it looked for you 10 years ago. Mm. So rather than taking a three-mile jog, you may prefer to do, uh, you know, 10 a 10-minute walk twice a day or something else you may prefer shorter intervals more frequently if that's what your body can handle
0: how about uh, you know we talked I just kind of just mentioned um COVID briefly just now but how about vaccinations with the the patient with multiple sclerosis is there anything that they have to be cautious about with their immune system what are some considerations for that
1: so generally, with multiple sclerosis, we do not um, advise that they, well, we advise against getting uh, live vaccines, oh. but but otherwise, um, non-live vaccines are okay to get. So the flu
0: shot is something they wouldn't get?
1: Uh, no, we do. So the flu shot is, um, in general, not a live okay. vaccine. Okay, okay. So we, we do recommend that for patients.
0: And what about, so, and I'm sure now with COVID, then you recommended your patients getting it.
1: Yes, yeah, so we always tell patients to um, discuss, you know, their specific situation with their own provider because they may have very specific reasons to get it or not to get it. Right. But for MS in general, we are recommending it, yes.
0: Well, we just you know are talking about habits, healthy habits, and you did mention you you encourage the patients not to smoke and definitely, right? because that is probably something that just just compromises their their whole immune system
1: right. We do have studies that show um smokers do have poorer outcomes
0: and And how about the use of alcohol too with patients?
1: Um, so, in general, we don't have specific correlations with alcohol use. Um, so, we just re- have regular um, healthful recommendations right. in regards to alcohol So, use.
0: they could have their glass of wine at night. Yes. <laughs> just
1: re- regular healthful
0: recommendations. Absolutely. So, you know, and so the glass of wine leads me to women's health a bit. Because <laughs> all of us ladies need our little glass of wine at night. but. When we talk about the prevalence of MS, you and I talked a little bit earlier today, and that you know we definitely studies do show more men than women will develop MS, and why is that?
1: So it's um, it's more women than men. Actually.
0: I meant to say women than. Men. Thank you for correcting me. Thank you. No
1: problem. <laughs> so I, and so, there's many different um, thoughts about why that may be. Um, and, and it seems to be that um, autoimmunity is more prevalent in women. Hmm. Um, and, and one theory, um, it has to do, um, you know, with hormonally driven um, issues. Um, And one of the things that's happening is that it used to be a smaller ratio, and the ratio is now growing, and it's close to a three-to-one ratio of females to males. And one thought may be um, that uh, it has to do with family size. So um, pregnancy is a protective time for MS. And as you know, many, many years ago, family sizes were much bigger. And so women would spend a much greater proportion of their life being pregnant, which was more protective. Right. And now that family size has decreased and women are spending less of their lives being pregnant and having less of that protective time, that may be playing a role in why we're seeing that ratio widen even more.
0: That's interesting. You know, I, I worked a lot with our breast surgeons um, many moons ago, and when we look at breast cancer, that was also one of the risk factors women with no children or very small um, size you know very small amount of children because they don't have that protection right so it seems it seems to follow that seems to be be true now how about do, if a woman becomes pregnant after she delivers, can that exacerbate someone that
1: maybe didn't know they had ms so the first Three months in the postpartum period uh, are an at-risk time for relapse. Mm-hmm. So, if a uh, woman was going to be susceptible to developing MS, then that would be a t- an at-risk time.
0: I, it's and the reason I ask is I actually knew two colleagues that this happened to. So, yeah, I knew two colleagues that this happened to where they, um, right after they delivered, they started experiencing symptoms when they didn't have symptoms, and then they were diagnosed. So I I wanted to see if, Mm -hmm. you know, if we could expand on that, but it's really interesting because I think that, you know, women don't realize, that, and they may have had symptoms before, but, you know, were so focused on the pregnancy or, or becoming pregnant that, you know, they, they didn't realize that they potentially could have MS. Right. Do you see, how is it to treat these women, these young women, and, and what's the age group that you see?
1: Well, so in regards to the age uh, of MS diagnoses, it's quite vast. So um, I would say that the the general age group of people that I see is between 20 and uh, 60. But certainly there are people um, older than 60 who I follow. Um, And I do not see pediatric MS, but that does exist, and there are pediatric MS specialists. Um, But in regards to the... um, young female population who's interested in pregnancy has questions about conception and family planning i think it's it's a wonderful population to work with and i actually enjoy having those conversations and helping them through that time in their lives
0: you know we talked about this earlier today but you know it's it's somewhat unique to have a, a female neurologist, we also we have another one within the system, and I it, I think it's so important for these women to be to identify with a female provider and feel somewhat secure.
1: mm
0: mm-hmm. Some myths or, or facts that are out there about MS, I kind of wanted to talk to about. Talk about is MS ever cured or is it managed?
1: So MS is never cured, but we can very, very much manage it um, to the point where uh, we feel that if it is properly managed to the biggest extent, we expect there to be no relapses, no lesions on MRI, and no disability progression. Wow. And the, the, the term that we use in the MS world for that is NIDA. Which is no evidence of disease activity.
0: So people can get diagnosed with MS in, in our current state in, in time and live normal lives to the best of their ability um, and, and expect to live a long life. Yes. And I think that's, to me, that's the best. Information out there because I think that people see it that they're going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of their lives.
1: Yes, I think that, you know, it's, I tell newly diagnosed patients that it is a a difficult time to be diagnosed with MS because um, there are not many people who have experienced this new. Uh, era of treatment so you don't have many examples to look wow. at and to have been through it for Wow um, so these patients who have uh, are using these high efficacy therapies early on in their treatment they will be the ones who future patients look to right as the example of what MS can be like in the future
0: and that's so huge That's so huge to be able to see 20, 30 years from now someone that was diagnosed and is living pretty much a a full life as they possibly can. Right. When you get a a patient that you, you diagnose, how... How do you go about educating them to be their own advocates, to know, know their symptoms and manage their disease properly so that they can be their best selves? That, that can't be easy to do. How do you do that?
1: Well, I think it's a process. And so typically what I do is I meet with them on a more frequent basis early in our relationship. And I make sure that I take time to answer their questions and really learn their symptoms. And I always tell them that we'll keep meeting every few months or so until our visits start to get boring <laughs> and we start talking about each other's kids. <laughs> and then once that starts happening, then I realize that they're probably doing well enough that we can extend our visits out. And by then they've started to learn their symptoms well enough to know what's normal, what's not normal, what they need to call about. Um, and it's just through having a very open relationship and talking about a lot of things that we, we eventually get there.
0: And I think that's probably, you know, bringing us back to home. That's probably why it's so important to have the center so it really matters where you get your care, as we talked about before.
1: Absolutely. I think that it's a huge group effort on our part to take good care of the patients because it's not just the care that I as the neurologist gives it's the support and care that they get from all the different members of our team
0: do you do we have a, a piece in place with these patients for potentially some mental health support I and mean, is that ever needed?
1: Absolutely so anxiety and depression is is a, is a very um, highly comorbid symptoms um, and comorbid diagnosis mm-hmm. with multiple sclerosis because it is an intrinsic symptom of the disease. Oh. So I tell patients that it's just like numbness and tingling so it's intrinsic to the disease process. So we are always on the lookout for this in our patients. And mm-hmm. we have um, behavioral health psychiatry, psychologists, social workers who we work very closely with.
0: That, and when a patient comes in more frequently, especially in the beginning, you're going to recognize those changes too. Right. Do we treat them with medications? Are there are medications that usually help them, the standard type of medications that we would give anyone with anxiety or depression.
1: Yes, we do. And studies have shown that really treatment with Talk therapy and med- medication combined really work the best, and that's no different in an MS patient.
0: Do we, do, or do you see help for these patients too with support groups?
1: Absolutely, I think support groups can be very helpful, and I think that um, it it really is dependent on the patient and dependent on the timeline in the patient's diagnosis and disease course. So some patients may not be ready for that early on in their diagnosis, um, but may find it, you know, really helpful later on. Others are different.
0: As you're working with these patients and we're you're developing a course of treatment for them, and we pick the medication and you pick the course of treatment that they're going to have, what are some, with these newer Style with these newer treatments, what are some of the side effects that come with these and um, are they things we can manage?
1: Some of the um, treatments uh, they have similar side effects in the sense that we have to monitor blood work periodically, Um, but I tell patients that one important thing about all our treatments is that um when you are on the right treatment you should not feel like you're on a treatment at all huh. so if you're having day-to-day side effects then it's not the right treatment for you because we don't want you to feel worse on a medication than if you weren't on one so um i think that's really a, a important take-home message and then each different medication has its own list of potential side effects that when we talk about them, we review in significant detail.
0: That's so important to what you just said. And it made me think back to a few individuals I know that have had, undergone treatment. They usually feel pretty great after their treatment. Right. They usually feel like they can run a marathon Which I always found really interesting And do you see that?
1: You know, I I think that I suspect you're referring to patients Maybe who were treated with steroids Probably maybe. steroids first, <laughs> right <laughs> and, and certainly, you know There are some patients Who definitely react that way to steroids But what I tell patients Is that with our MS treatments you, sh- if they're working you really shouldn't feel anything at all. Right. Um, so you know you shouldn't feel highs you shouldn't feel lows um, you should just sort of receive the treatment um, and that's it and go about your life and really the marker of whether or not it's working is you having no new symptoms
0: so I I kind of want to bring together everything we've said just to um, make sure that, like I said, we bring things back to center and uh, make sure everybody has a clear idea of what is the most important takeaways from today. And definitely the comprehensive care is probably to me one of the biggest things. I agree. Mm -hmm. And then looking at the fact that MS itself is not really the diagnosis that it was maybe 10, 20 years ago.
1: Agreed. It has is, it is changed so much, and and we can do so much to make the disease course different now.
0: And for that patient that may be experiencing signs and symptoms, what would you say to them, this is the most important thing to do, if, is it's, if it's something that doesn't go away or continues to come back, and it's the numbness, it's the tingling, it could be the vision, it could be, like you said, a variety of things, what would you say to individuals out there to, to do if it's something that is concerning?
1: I would recommend that they see a neurologist or at least see their primary care doctor to discuss their symptoms and discuss their concerns. And typically um, after discussing their symptoms, the provider will help figure out what is the next step? What's the most appropriate next step? And that may be Um, If you're at a primary care doctor, it may be seeing a neurologist. If that means coming to see us at the Mandel Center for an evaluation, then we are more than happy to see patients.
0: You know, it's funny that you say that, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because having the centers provide us with a resource to actually evaluate the patient without them waiting to get into one of our neurology offices. Mm-hmm. Right, so I think yeah. the referral from your primary care physician directly to one of the centers is is a, a, a great a great opportunity.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, and, absolutely.
0: And they can see yourself or one of our other neurologists at the other sites.
1: Absolutely.
0: How um, far along is our Mercy or our Springfield Market with the center?
1: they are well they are up and running and and fully functional comprehensive centers so um patients are being seen and patients can certainly book appointments there
0: so, I am going to. I just want to make sure everybody knows um, where our locations are. So, if you go on our website, trinityhealthofne.org, um, and you're looking for the Mandel Center in Hartford, you can actually, if you type in, B I B A L E Y actually right under her lists our locations for the both Mandel centers in the Connecticut market we don't have the Springfield one up here yet but we'll make sure we get that information to you but if you put in um, Dr. Bailey's name it'll pull up the Training Health of New England Medical Group Mandel MS Center and that is on Blue Hills Avenue in Hartford and the number there is six zero seven one. Four two one four nine. That's eight six zero seven one four two one four nine. And the center in Waterbury is right at St. Mary's Hospital um, at 56 Franklin Street. And the number there is 203-709-6500. 203-709-6500. So Dr. Bailey, anything else you'd like to leave us with tonight for the audience?
1: No, I am um, so thankful that you um, gave me the opportunity to speak with you this evening and I just want to emphasize that at all of our Mandel centers we are here to um, meet everyone's MS needs. We are excited to be here for the community and um, I will speak for myself and really everyone else at the centers that we love what we do. And we hope that it shows through to our patients.
0: And as we're starting to open things up more and more, you know, it might be a great opportunity in the future for us to be able to do tours for anybody um, to see what we have to offer. So I'm going to maybe sneak you over there doc and and do a a nice little community program again we used to do those in the past and we're just starting to open those things up moving forward so it'll be a great opportunity for you to maybe do something in person to connect with our community and uh, we could do one here in waterbury one in Hartford. we'll spread ourselves out and one in springfield why not that would be wonderful. <laughs> so, Dr. Mary Bailey, thank you so much for for joining us tonight. And again, it's trendyhealthofne.org, and if you put in Dr. Mary Bailey, B A I L E, um, and pull her up, on um, it will list our locations for the Mandel Center. Thank you, Doc, so much for joining us. Have a great night. Thank you.
1: You too.
0: So I want to thank everyone um, tonight for joining us. Um, I want to make sure that we have the opportunity to connect with you um, about our services for neurology. I know we've had quite a few programs over the last several weeks on the growth of our neurology team. um, And... Focusing on our headed clinic, our epilepsy center that's being developed regionally um, for epileptic patients, which we're really excited to be able to provide that service. Neurosciences is a big deal, and Training Health of New England has inve- invested quite uh, Johnny's giving me the one minute. Okay, Johnny. Has invested quite a bit of resources to be able to grow that, to be able to offer our community um, neurology services. And the MS Center is one of those um, sites. I am very proud um, to be part of the growth um, and be able to present this to you. The MS Center in Waterbury is absolutely beautiful and has an incredible team of nurses, physicians, um, physical therapist, occupational therapist to meet all your needs um, if and when someone in your family is ever diagnosed, family, friend, um, whatever. We invite you to always um, look into it and we're happy to provide a tour anytime of our center. Johnny says I have to wrap it up. So I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. We will be back in a couple of weeks. Have an incredible uh, weekend. Um, I think the weather is going to be great and I'm going on vacation for a week, Johnny. So looking forward to it. Robin Sills, Trinity Health of New England. Have a great night.